Would you turn with me this morning to the book of John, chapter 1? We're going to go back there today to continue our study on this topic, the Gospel of John, that we may see there there is life in Jesus, the Son of God. John wrote, John the Apostle wrote this Gospel with that very clear message and stated mission in mind that we would see that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Messiah, he is the promised one, and that we would believe in him, and that by believing, he says, you would have life in his name. There is only one hope, there is only one place to turn for life eternal and life that is meaningful, and that is Jesus Christ. And the gospel is very clear about that, and we today will look at John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34, as we've we've looked over the last couple weeks now at the ministry of John the Baptist. And we see this today, that John declares, behold the Lamb. Look there with me, if you will, in John chapter 1, beginning in verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel, therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have now to open your word over just these these precious few minutes today. Lord, we ask that you'd help us to bask in the glory of the Son of God. That we would take in the things that are said here and truly take them to heart. That Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world. Lord, would you drive that truth deep into our hearts today, Lord, for one who has heard the things of God and still does not know what to do with them, who wrestles with their sin, Lord, would you show them that there is hope in you. For the Christian, Lord, would you challenge our hearts today of the testimony and the witness you long for us to be of your truth and your love and your grace to a lost and dying world. Would you challenge us to further growth in your grace, understanding that that grace isn't a license to do whatever we please, but is a calling to a new life in you, lived to your honor and your glory. And Lord, would you convict us of sin, show us the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, and change us from the inside out. In your name we pray, amen. You know, good theology isn't just a nice idea. But good theology is incredibly vital for the life that you and I live. If you misunderstand theology, if you misunderstand the things about God, you miss the most important things in life. In fact, good theology helps you understand who God is, what he's done, who you are, where you stand with God, and how you can be right with God for eternity. Everything that you and I do in life is theological. Even if you say, well, I'm, I'm no theologian, I'm no pastor, I, I don't even go to church that often. Everything that you do is theological. 
The way you act, the things you say, the beliefs that you carry in your heart reflect the theological core that you have in your being. Because everyone has a worldview. Everyone has a means by which they interpret this life. And it's imperative that sound theology be settled in our hearts if we are to live a life that is right with God. Here in John chapter 1 today, John, we, meet, we see again John the Baptist, who is the forerunner of Jesus Christ, the last of the Old Testament prophets, who is preparing the hearts of the people of Israel to receive Jesus as Messiah. We see John proclaiming a message of utmost theological importance, especially in the day and age that he lived. Because he touted Jesus Christ as not just a man, not just a good man, but as the Son of God as the Messiah who had been long promised throughout Israel's history. And he called on people to see their sin in light of God's perfection and to repent and prepare their hearts. And now, John's message takes on yet another note of theological significance. Jesus, the Messiah, has come as the Lamb of God to take away man's sin. It is a message of hope of finality, of renewal, and redemption. It is the greatest theological truth that you and I can ever settle in our hearts, that salvation from sin comes through Jesus Christ alone. And what we see from this passage is, because Jesus is the Lamb of God, I must trust him to meet my greatest needs and deepest longings. There is nowhere else to turn. There is no other truth that leads us. We have to understand that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God. And because he is that, that is where we have to turn. If you and I are going to to be at peace with God, if you and I are going to live in a way that pleases God, we have to turn to Jesus Christ. And he is the one who meets these deepest longings and desires of our hearts and souls. So let's look today at just a couple of things that we see in this passage. In verses 29 through 31, as we see this message that that John proclaims, we see there the Lamb declared by John himself. It says in verse 29, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is a proclamation by John to all those who listened to him. And, and if you remember back to last week, and if, if you weren't here, we'll, we'll catch you up real quick. All of these events that we're looking at over the next several weeks take place in the span of one week. And so what you had last week was on, on one day of the week, we had this delegation from the Sanhedrin that appeared, and they wished to know the identification of John the Baptist. And so this happened on the second day of this week that we have recorded. So the next day is when, when all of these events happen. In his answer to the Sanhedrin the day before, John gave all glory to God and and pointed the questioners to an imminent appearance of the Messiah. And on this day, the appearance of Jesus Christ is the focal point of everything that John says. Because Jesus, having returned from his fasting in the desert and victory over Satan in temptation, approaches John and those listening to him as he preaches. And as He approaches, 
John gives his testimony of the Messiah to those who are listening and to us today. So imagine, if you would, the scene as John is, is out there proclaiming the things of God to all who came to hear him. And he proclaims this about Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He proclaims Jesus to be the Lamb of God. It's interesting because this is a title that only the Apostle John records of Jesus. Only John, that disciple, who's unnamed in his own gospel, is the one who calls Jesus the Lamb of God. He uses it again in the book of Revelation. It is also the first of several titles in this chapter that are applied to Jesus. And and to the nation of Israel, this title and the difference of who Jesus is carry incredible ramifications. And so we're going to take some time this morning and, and really try to soak in and understand what does that title, the Lamb of God, behold the Lamb, really mean? Because perhaps in our modern culture and perhaps in, in, in this age in which we live, we've lost some of the idea of what does that really mean to the people who stand there that day. But, but understand that lambs are of vital importance to the nation of Israel. And this first importance goes all the way back to what we have in the book of Genesis in, in, in the progenitor of the nation of Israel by the, in the man by the name of Abraham. See, Abraham was the one from which the nation of Israel would come. He was the one who, who had no son, and God promised him a, a son. He promised him a son whose name would be Isaac. Isaac was born to Abraham and his wife Sarah when Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 90. God promised to make from Abraham and from his son, specifically his son Isaac, a great nation. The nation of Israel is what came from Abraham and Isaac. And one day, after Isaac's birth, God came to Abraham with a test of faith. He called for Abraham to take his son, his only son Isaac, whom he had waited for for many years, whom God had promised and and delivered. And he said, I want you to take your son and I want you to sacrifice him to me. This happens in Genesis chapter 22. And I'm not going to take the time this morning to preach all of Genesis 22. That's another message for another day. But understand that what happens in Genesis 22, we read the account of Abraham's obedience. He he gathers his men, he gathers the items necessary for the sacrifice, and they depart for a place called Mount Moriah where the sacrifice would take place. And as they arrive at Mount Moriah, Abraham and Isaac ascend to make that sacrifice to God. It is then that Isaac realizes that something is amiss. And we read this exchange in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 7 and 8. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Isaac had not understood yet what was going on. And, and as, a, as a parent, I mean, not, my heart understands that. Maybe you know, Abraham hasn't shared that with him, right? But Abraham has such faith in God. Abraham trusts God implicitly that he would provide a lamb. Or, as we read in the book of Hebrews, that, that if he allowed him to go through with the sacrifice of Isaac, he would raise Isaac from the dead. 
And what we read in Genesis 22 on the mountain that day, that God indeed stayed Abraham's hand from sacrificing his son. And provided a ram caught in the thicket on the top of Mount Moriah. God provided the lamb. But that statement of Abraham in verse, in verse 8 there is prophetic in nature. Because as John stood proclaiming the truth of God that day, striding into John's presence is the complete fulfillment of what Abraham said. The Lamb of God has come. Jesus came as the sacrifice for the sin of mankind. Just as that that lamb on Mount Moriah all those years ago was, was the sacrifice instead of Isaac, so Jesus came as the sacrifice. He came as the lamb to, to, to take away sin and be offered to God. Now, of course, the account on Mount Moriah isn't the end of lambs in the history of Israel. Let me fast forward the story to the book of Exodus In the book of Exodus, we observe the deliverance of God's people who were in bondage and in slavery in the land of Egypt. God, having heard his people's groanings, sent Moses to command Pharaoh to let the people go. And if you've heard the story, you know that that Pharaoh wasn't too keen on letting all that free labor leave his country, right? And, And so he hardened his heart against God. And and when he hardened his heart, God began to send plague after plague after plague upon the nation of Egypt, giving him, Pharaoh, a chance to relent and turn from these things. But Pharaoh continued to harden his heart. Many of these plagues that God rained down upon Egypt didn't affect his own people who didn't live with all the other people from Egypt and lived in the land of Goshen. But the 10th plague was very different. Because see, in the tenth plague, and the final plague that God sent, he sent his angel out into the nation of Egypt to kill all the firstborn that night. However, God very plainly and very clearly gave to Moses and to, to those who would listen a way of escape. It is on this occasion of this plague that God established for his people what became known as the Passover. And that feast of Passover for his people. We read about this in Exodus chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 3 through 7 and verses 12 through 13. It says, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you, must, you shall keep, keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lentil of the houses where they eat it. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. 
The blood of a lamb was God's prescription and God's prescribed way to avoid this plague. And Jesus has now appeared as a fuller fulfillment of this sign as well. See, what, what the Israelites did on that night was a picture of what Jesus would do. And now every year they would celebrate this feast. God wasn't sending the angel through the land of Egypt. There's only one time the angel came, but they would remember when God came. And, and it's called Passover because he would pass over those homes where the blood of the lamb was on the doorpost. And so Jesus, he had come as the lamb of God who alone could deliver them from certain death. Just as there had been certain death to the firstborn of the people of, of Egypt and Israel when the, when the death angel came through, there was certain death that comes from our sin as well. And Jesus came to deliver us from that. So, so Jesus came as the sacrifice, as we saw from, from Isaac. But you know, Jesus also came as the substitute, as the one who would offer himself for the sin of mankind. See, the people in Egypt that day And those who offered lambs in the temple in John's day were responsible to bring those lambs to offer them in their place. Because sin has a terrible price. The price of sin is death. Sin requires death. And we're not talking about physical death, but eternal death, separation from God, because he is a holy and just God who cannot look upon our sin, who cannot tolerate our sin, and must judge our sin. And so there is only two options. You can die for sin, or Jesus can take the place for you. He came as a substitute. But again, this is not the end of lambs and their prominent place in Israel's history. For As God's people journeyed to the promised land, God made a covenant with them, and he gave them his laws. Now, the laws of God revealed who he is. He revealed who they were, and he prescribed how they were to deal with their sin. Because again, sin has a price. And so, because Jesus had not come, God is is communicating to his people, hey, there is a a great price for your sin, and that price would would one day ultimately be paid by Jesus Christ. But looking ahead to that, and and making the people right with God, and, and the relationship right with God, God prescribed these things in the law as a covering for their sin. In Leviticus 17.11, we read, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. You see, sin is, is anything that goes against God's law. It is what we may call transgression or disobedience. And a transgression and disobedience against a holy, just, eternal God has great consequences, has eternal consequences. And so God provided through his law the methods and the means by which atonement for one's sin could be found. We read in Exodus chapter 29, verses 38 through 42, Now this is what you shall offer on the altar, two lambs of the first year, day by day, continually. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. With the one lamb shall be one-tenth of an ephah of flour mixed with one-fourth of a hen of pressed oil and one-fourth of a hen of wine as a drink offering. And the other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and you shall offer it with the grain offering and the drink offering as in the morning for a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. 
This shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet you to speak with you. So this is corporately. God prescribed that that the priests, the Levites, those there serving in the tabernacle, and eventually they would serve in the temple, were to offer continually these things. These two lands were to be offered every day for sin. But it wasn't just corporately. It was also personally. You see, because we sin as, as individuals, and, and God was, was hammering home again the point that, that our individual sin puts us at odds with God, and, and there's a price to be paid for that. So we read in Leviticus chapter 5, verses 5 through 7, it shall be when he is guilty in any of these matters that he shall confess that he has sinned in that thing. And he shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord for his sin which he has committed, a female from the flock, a lamb, or a kid of the goats as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his sin. If he is not able to bring a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord for his trespass which he has committed two turtle doves or two young pigeons, one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering. By God's command, lambs were an integral part of Israel's sacrificial system. And each time one of those lambs died, and each time one of those animals, their life had to be given for sin, the price of sin was hammered home once again. That there is a cost. That blood has to be shed to cover sin. The law of God was broken by man, and the animals prescribed by God paid the price of that sin. However, God was clear that this was an atonement. See, it's not a full payment. Atonement is a covering for sin. And you know, again, that's hammered home very clearly because these sacrifices were repeated day after day. We, We read the ones about the corporate lambs that were offered every day. The two lambs and the other offerings that were offered every day in the temple. There was no end to that because no lamb could take the finality of the price of sin. Imagine, if you would, that you live in the land of Israel and, and you sin and, and you must go and, and make atonement for that sin. And I don't know about you, but it's not like I just then go three months and don't sin again. And you have to go back, right? And you look forward every year to the day of atonement when, when all of those things are placed on that lamb that, that's offered on the altar for the people. See, if the physical lambs could actually solve man's, man's sin problem, there would be no more need, there would be no need for more than one. But that wasn't the case. The lambs couldn't remove the sin, they could only satiate the requirement for a sin that had been committed. You see, Jesus came to fulfill this role. He came to be the Lamb of God offered once and for all for sin. So he's the sacrifice and the substitute, but finally he is the satisfaction of all of these things. Jesus came and met all the requirements of God's law as God's perfect Lamb. He completely satisfied the requirements of God's law and satisfied the covering not just the covering, but the taking away of sin through his death and resurrection. 
A lamb was used to describe the Messiah. We read this morning Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. See, here's the thing. Israel, as she had been for hundreds of years, was seeking her Messiah. But she didn't quite know what to expect. The nation sought a prophet, a king, a conqueror, one who would overthrow the Roman government. But God sent, and Jesus is all of those things. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the one who will give ultimate victory over all sin. But you know what he had to come and do first? He had to come as a lamb to die for the sins of mankind. That is the work of the Messiah. And that is exactly what John declares Jesus is the fulfillment of all the nation's expectations. He is the end of all the physical lambs that have been offered before him. He is the fulfillment because of what John says about him. See, Jesus isn't just another lamb. He is the lamb of God. He has not come to cover up and atone for sin, but he has come to take it away. There's a difference. A huge difference. He is the perfect sacrifice, substitute, and satisfaction. And John declares that is what Jesus is doing in the present moment. Perhaps you could better translate this word, this verse from the Greek. Behold, the Lamb of God who is taking away the sin of the world. See, Jesus came to remove the sin of man. He, he came not to offer a covering that would, temp, would, would be a temporary reprieve but a solution that would erase it from one's record entirely. That is exactly who Jesus is. He is the Lamb of God come to offer salvation from sin and its eternal punishment. And that offer isn't just for Israel, but for all nations, tongues, and tribes. That is exactly what John meant when he said he takes away the sin of the world. Every human being is born with this problem. You and I are sinners. You and I do wrong. And as I'm prone to say, if you don't believe me, just flip on the news for three minutes. And if you think that's okay, then we need to have a discussion, okay? We are born with a sin problem. We have a heart problem. We're trapped in our sin. That sin is is passed down to us by our parents. And and because we are sinners, because we commit sin, we are separated from God. But Jesus came to take away your sin. He came to give you new life in himself. No matter who you are or what you've done, you can receive new life from him. But understand, it isn't forced on you. And it isn't automatically applied to your account. You must receive it as a gift by placing your complete trust in him. And remember that that is the key. One of the key things that drives the book of John is this over and over again that you may believe. It is a conscious decision to turn from yourself in your own ways and place your trust in Jesus alone. 
This is who Jesus is. John confirms Jesus is the Messiah whom he has spoken of before. And we see that confirmation as we follow this, these verses down. He says in verse 30, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. We, re- we read John's earlier declarations about Jesus Last week, and as the Son of God, he ranks above John because he existed in eternity past long before John ever did. And like the delegation that arrived the week before, or the others who stood before John that day, John's very open. He says, I I previously didn't know that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, he's not saying he didn't know Jesus before this because Jesus and John are are actually relatives. So he knew Jesus, but he didn't know him in that role as the Messiah of Israel. And so now, he is declaring to them. He performed this ministry of preparing the way for the Messiah, baptizing those who repented and preparing their hearts. And one day, that lamb had been revealed to John. And he talks about that in the second part of our passage today. He talks about the lamb revealed in verses 32 through 34. There's a full revelation here, and John bore witness saying... I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see my Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. This is the full revelation of Jesus to John. The the Lamb of God was revealed to John as he ministered for God in his role as the forerunner of the Messiah. And John relates to us, what he saw that revealed the Lamb to John himself. For as we stated, he had no knowledge of him in that messianic role before his baptism. And it is here that we come across something that John the Apostle seems to understand that readers will be familiar with in the Synoptic Gospels. So in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you read the account of the baptism of Jesus. But, but John, who, who writes at a much later time, doesn't share with us that account. And again, there's, there seems to be an assumption here that, that readers have already read that account. And so now this is the meaning of that account. And it is at this baptism that God confirmed the identity of his son. I, I give to you today the account from Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And, and John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and, and you are coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. God the Father God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are all observed in this passage. The triunity of the three-in-one God that we serve is seen here. The Holy Spirit takes the form of a dove descending from heaven. 
It's interesting, you know, John talks about, about, the, Holy, about the Spirit descending upon him. We, we read about, in, in the Old Testament specifically, you read about the Spirit of, of the Lord, or the Spirit of God coming upon those who would do the work of God. And, and oftentimes, he would come for that short time or for that amount of time that it was needed. But the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus and never leaves, but empowers him as God, because he is God, to do the work of the Messiah on earth. And so... The Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus in the form, again, takes the form of a dove in this instance. The voice of God the Father is heard, and the God-man Jesus is confirmed to be the incarnate word. And, and when John observed this, he knew exactly who Jesus was. You cannot come in contact with God. You cannot be confronted with who God is and what he's done and leave unchanged. John observed the evidence, and he knew he had found the Messiah. So what we read here in verse 33 is that there was apparently a prearranged sign between God and his messenger, John. Now, it was, it was not unusual for God to speak to someone like John at this time in his life, because John is the last of the Old Testament prophets, and all throughout the Old Testament, those prophets, those messengers of God, the, the mouthpieces of God to give what God has said, spoke, God spoke to them quite often. He gave them the things that they were to declare to other people, and here we see him doing it again. And now John the Baptist is transitioning the nation from hearing from the prophets like himself to hearing directly from the Son of God. See, at this point in John's ministry, he is no longer just a prophet talking about someday the Messiah is coming or one day soon the Messiah is coming. Now he's transitioning to declaring that, hey, the, the Messiah is here. The Lamb has been revealed. And he declares him. And, you know, we may wonder, what is the significance of Jesus' baptism? Because if it was a sign that John administered to those who repented from their sin, you ever wondered why Jesus was baptized? But Jesus had no sin as the Son of God and God himself to repent from. Well, Jesus' act of baptism is not an admission of sin and a need for repentance, but it is a further identification of himself with those he came to seek and to save. His baptism and subsequent temptation furthered his vicarious taking of the law upon himself to keep it perfectly and to pay sin's penalty. Jesus did this for you. He bore the wrath of God for your sin. He went to God on your behalf. He was crucified so that you could find life in him. And to you who are searching for answers who are looking for hope, who are wrestling for peace and living an unfulfilled life apart from him, he offers all of this and more in himself. He holds out new eternal life for you. To you, Christian, who have found life in Jesus, the Son of God, he calls you to live for himself. Jesus did not die to offer you salvation so that you could live for yourself and your sin. Jesus gives you grace at salvation and continues to pour out that grace that you may see real victory in your life. Listen, the life of a disciple is a hard life. God, Jesus makes that very clear. 
Because it is a life battling against the well-worn paths of sin in God's power. It's a life given to Jesus, our new master and Lord, but it's the most fulfilling life. And Christian, do you want to know why you still face turmoil in your life? Why you still sit up wondering at night while you're struggling, why others aren't connecting with you, why your prayers don't seem to be answered is because you use the grace of God as an excuse in your life. God's grace isn't a checkbook to cash in on our sin. God's grace is an adoption into his family where we are free to say no to sin and yes to doing what's right. It's a calling to live out the reality of our transformed eternity. And so behold the Lamb. He has vicariously lived and died for you that you may live for him. And with these statements, the full testimony of John has come to a close. We read in verse 34, And I have seen... And testified that this is the Son of God. It's as if John the Baptist closes his testimony on the witness stand. As we said, the idea of the, behind the word testified is a legal term that John uses. And John the Apostle's purpose is to show us that Jesus is the Son of God and that believing in him we have life in his name. So he has called on John the Baptist who has served this very purpose. He has seen Jesus, and testified to us that he is the Son of God. And the use of that title, the Son of God, reminds us that, again, this is, this is different than what is said about those trusting in Jesus, even in verse 12, and becoming children of God. It is a divine title, one that emphasizes that Jesus shares the same nature as God. John gave, throughout his life, John the Baptist gave verbal testimony to Jesus' deity. You know, God calls on you and I as, as, as those who follow him, those who have been saved and redeemed by Jesus Christ. He calls on us to do the same. Yes, we most certainly must live in a way that reflects God. But this so-called lifestyle evangelism isn't the complete calling of a Christian. You must reach others with the truth by telling them that truth. You and I are compelled by God to tell others about the truth of the gospel. Don't be like the story that's told of a Christian young man who went off to a secular university. And of course, as he went off, he had been raised in church his whole life. And as any parent would, they worried about him. It doesn't matter if you go to Christian or secular university. Moms are going to worry, right? But they worry particularly that this young man would, would stay strong in his faith. That, 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 that no matter what he heard, no matter the friends that he met, he would continue to serve the Lord boldly and faithfully. And as he returned home for Christmas, his parents were asking him to share you know, how the semester went as a whole. And, and by the way, that's how you know this is a guy because he never called mom the whole semester. Okay, you know, Girls get there and they tell him how it's going. And guys, you know, it's good, right? And as they're sitting there around the table and they're talking about this, they begin to ask him, you know, how are you doing in your faith? He said, hey, I'm doing great. No one even knows I'm a Christian. It's great. This should not be the testimony of one who knows the Lord. It should be, yes, that when people learn we are a Christian, they're not surprised 
by what they have observed. But God does not call us to live our lives as gospel ninjas, secretly going around and maybe someday someone will notice that I'm a Christian. No, he calls us to be bold. He calls us to give the truth and love. He calls us to share the gospel with other people. How will they hear unless we tell? Like John the Baptist, we are called to point people to the Lamb of God. He has come to transform our lives, to remove our sin, and to make us his own. So because Jesus is the Lamb of God, I must trust him to meet my greatest needs and deepest longings. You and I do not live in first century Jerusalem. Nor do we have the background of Israel and its sacrifices. But you and I have the same root problem that everyone in that time and everyone since, since Genesis chapter 3 has had. We have the problem of sin. And because of sin, we are separated from God, for he is holy. He is set apart from sin. And God's holiness means that he is removed from sin and can have nothing to do with it. And as his just nature is highlighted throughout the Old Testament law, God must judge sin. And so, you and I stand in line for judgment before our holy creator. See, the sacrifices that God's law prescribed throughout the Old Testament highlighted the price of sin. Sin has a tremendous cost. And if you die in your sin, you will spend eternity in hell, separated from God because of your sin. But the greatest expression of God's love came in the form of Jesus. Behold the Lamb. He has come as the perfect sacrifice, substitute, and satisfaction of God's law. He has come to take away your sin. He lived a perfect life, died on the cross, and rose again to give you victory over sin. Because of Jesus, you can have new life. The grace of God is poured out on you. Would you accept that grace today? You can find life in Jesus, the Son of God. And that life is a new calling to live in His grace for His glory. See, God calls you to spend this new life in service to Him. He calls you to testify of His goodness with your words and life. You have to live in a way that backs up what you say. And you have to tell others, what amazing change God has wrought for you in Jesus. That, that is just incumbent upon the life of a believer. John the Baptist testified this of Jesus, that he is the Lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world. And if you enjoy this gift, live out your calling for him. What is the step of obedience that God has been calling you to? What sin are you wrestling with that you will not give up? Is he calling you to further obedience, to stepping out to do more? Very simply, my friend, you and I must follow him today in these things. And oftentimes, it is that first step of that that, that, that feels the hardest. Because in order to, to find salvation in Jesus Christ, or in order as a Christian to get things right with, our, with God, we have to humbly admit, hey, this is a problem. I can't help myself. I need to submit myself to God and what he says. 
And however I can help you, I'd love to do that. If you'd like to sit down and, and discuss from the Word of God what it says about, about how to have eternity with God, we can do that. If you'd like to sit down and look at the Word of God and see what it has to say about this sin that you're struggling with or these things that, that are going on in your life, we can do that. We can sit, we can read, we can pray together, we can meet and talk these things over. And I just want you to know, as a pastor, I'm available to you to help you in your walk with God. Because there is nothing so great, there is no greater peace or joy than finding eternal life in God. And there is no greater joy, Christian, than living in perfect harmony with God. Jesus is the Lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world. Jesus is our hope. and Jesus meets every longing of our soul. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you most today as we have focused on it for Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Lord, we thank you that in all of the things you have given throughout your word, you have pointed and proclaimed one incredible thing, that Jesus came to fulfill the law in our place, to take the punishment of sin and to offer us eternal life and new life. And today, Lord, we ask that you would do your work in our hearts, that you would use the truth of your word to continue to hammer home these truths, that you would show us our sin, that you would humble us before yourself, that you would tear down our pride and the walls that we have erected in our own lives, and you would help us to come before you humbly. And Lord, may we see that when we do so, there is hope and peace and grace. We thank you for Jesus. And we ask that you would, as we go from this place today, continue to do your work in our hearts. And would you bring us back together tonight to worship you? In your name we pray.